Good morning, church family. This summer, we're studying the book of James, and if you know anything about this book, you know James isn't writing to provide a little chicken soup for the soul. He's not writing to offer us some inspirational platitudes. He's not writing to pat anyone on the back. He's not even writing to persuade skeptics to become believers. He's writing to provide no-nonsense, practical instruction to Christians, to his fellow believers. Just to give you a little feel for what we're stepping into here, there are 108 verses in this short book, and 50 of those verses are commands. So we know James is action-oriented. He wants to get up in our business. After reading the book, one can't help but also get the sense that James would have made a great football coach. And uh, he, he's writing because he wants us to get with the program. And that program is walking in the ways of Jesus. As Pastor David Holcomb mentioned when he introduced the series, James is a, a just-the-facts kind of guy. And so that means that uh, rather than giving us a pass on some of the harder teachings of Jesus or just kind of hoping we'll gradually mature into this in our own time, James says, like, no, <laughs> that's not going to work. Let's do this. Th th there's no point in having church if we're not going to be the church. If we're going to talk the talk, then we need to walk the walk. If we say we believe like we should, then we can't go and live like we shouldn't. And so when we get to James chapter 2, verse 1 this morning, guess, guess how the first sentence begins. You think we're going to see a question? Are we going to see some kind of a declarative sentence, like a factual statement, or do we get a command? We get a command, that's right. If you have your Bibles open, James chapter 2, verse 1, he writes this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The point being made here is, is that if we have faith in Jesus then it really matters how we behave in relation to other people within the church. If you believe that's true, just turn to the person beside you right now and tell them, it matters how I treat you. That's true. And, and, and faith and favoritism are incompatible. You can't have them at the same time. Discrimination or favoring some people over others on the basis of outward appearance, it's inconsistent with true faith. And then James goes on to articulate why this is the case. If you're taking notes today on the back of your bulletin, you might want to jot down this outline. This is, this is the flow of the argument that James is going to make. After giving us the command, he's going to provide us with a hypothetical example in verses 2 to 4. And then he's going to lay out three reasons for why partiality is wrong, and then we're going to find a, uh, a concluding warning in verses 12 to 13. Don't worry if you didn't get this all now, you'll see it again later. Now just to be clear, all forms of discrimination are sin, and people can discriminate on the basis of class, on the basis of race, on the basis of looks or athletic talent, and it's all wrong. Uh, the particular example that James gives us here is discrimination on the basis of one's economic standing. 
Beginning now in verse 2, we find this. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So this example helps us understand the essence of partiality. In this scenario, two guests walk in, and the first man, I mean, he's dressed in a stylish sport coat, he's got leather loafers, he's got a fancy watch, and he's just giving off this air of affluence. And uh, you, you, you take one look at him, and you, you can't help but wonder that if, like, if his belt doesn't cost more than your entire outfit, you're not sure exactly what he does, but it's obvious that it's a very lucrative profession. He's probably high up the ladder in some successful company. And at the same time, another guy walks in, and uh, you know he might be one of those candidates for the, like, the extreme makeover show. His clothes are, are, are dated. They show signs of wear. They're in need of hemming. Uh, there's no fancy stylish sunglasses or jewelry or any other accoutrement of wealth. I mean, this guy is, is, is genuinely poor. His annual take-home pay is, is still less than what that first guy brings in in a month. And the greeters and the ushers, they go up to the first guy and they, they fawn all over him. They make a big deal. They're making a fuss. Oh, we're so glad you're here today, sir. You know, can we get you a cup of coffee before you take your seat? And Oh, speaking of seats, we, we, we got a great seat for you right over here. Uh, back then, that would have been a seat up close near the pulpit. Uh, nowadays, I think uh, some of you would argue that's a seat in the back, right? Uh, but, the, the, I mean, they're giving this guy the VIP treatment. And at the same time, some other impatient usher comes up to the poor man and says, like, here, here's a bulletin. And, and in an exasperated huff, says, you, you just go stand over there in the corner. In other words, just try and stay out of the way. Now, this illustration, to be clear, isn't about the rich man or the poor man. There's nothing wrong with being rich or poor. This illustration's about the one who discriminates, about the one who, who shows favoritism to the rich man over the poor man. And when we do that, Verse 4 tells us that we've made distinctions among ourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Evil's a strong word, isn't it? We don't use that word very often, is my observation. We try to like, reserve that for really horrific things. Like We say that if, um, if there's like a suicide bombing or some kind of mass shooting or some kind of crime against a kid. But, but God calls it evil when we entertain these ideas of showing favoritism to, to one group of people over another based on outward appearances. And, and I think the reason God, God is so against this, that, it, that it, it's just so awful in His sight, is because it's contrary to the way that He works. See, here's what we see in Scripture. In Acts Chapter 10, when uh, P- 
Peter observes the gospel going to the Gentiles, this is what he says. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Well, Romans 2, 11 puts it even more succinctly. For God shows no partiality. Even, even Jesus' critics, they recognize this to be true about him. So in Luke chapter 20, the Pharisees, they come up to Jesus and they begin their question this way. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. See, even his enemies had to admit that Jesus wasn't one who was swayed by outward appearances. We get to uh, 1 Samuel 16, and uh, the, the prophet Samuel is being guided by God to anoint the next king of Israel, and he's standing in front of this very impressive-looking young man, and uh, it's, it's the oldest son of Jesse, and Samuel's getting kind of excited, and God comes to him, and he says this. He said, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on what? Help me out. Outward appearances. But the Lord looks on what? The heart. The heart. See, God knows our tendency is to look at outward appearances. Our tendency is to make quick judgments on people uh, based on their dress, based on their body type, based on the car they drive, based on their education. We say, oh, they live in that neighborhood. Oh, their kids go to that school. Oh, they drive that kind of car. Even the, the prophet Samuel was susceptible to this. You see, what we can do is we can treat life like a card game. Anybody play cards before? You know how this works? If uh, you get handed a, a face card like a jack, you might get a little excited, right? Because jack's one of the, the higher cards in the deck. But what about if, uh, if you turn over a, a queen? You might even get a little bit more excited, right? Because a queen's worth more than a jack, right? But then what about if, uh, if your next card's a king? Well, that, that's even better, right? Because a king is more valuable than a, than a jack or a queen. What about if we go to the pile and we turn it over and it's a, it's a two? Or it's a, it's a three? Well, those are cards you might want to discard, right? Because these, these are low cards. These aren't worth very much. And so you might want to trade those in and go back to the pile in hopes of getting an ace or even better, a pair of aces, right? See, here's what we can do. We, we can approach life like a game of cards. We can look at people and based on their outward appearances and our preconceived notions, we can go and we can assign a value to people and we can say, oh, this one's higher, that one's lower. This one's good, that one's bad. This one's valuable, this one isn't. And God says, don't do that. Don't do that because I don't do that. See, we, we, we look at people like this, and this is how God looks at people. He sees us all the same. And, and, and who are we to go 
and, and to make distinctions among people because of superficial differences when God's created all of us in his image, when we're all equal in his eyes. And having laid that foundation with this example, James then uh, moves forward with his first of three arguments. He says the, the first reason favoritism towards the wealthy is wrong is that it's ungodly. It's contrary to God's value system. Beginning now in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? I know many of our church have uh, been on overseas mission trips. In fact, uh, some of our young adults just got back from a trip to the Challenge Farm in Katali, Canada. And those of you that uh, have, have traveled overseas to visit our Christian brothers and sisters in some of these developing world countries, you, you know what happens. Everybody, well, I don't want to say everybody, but most people, they come back. And, and here's, here's the reoccurring comment that I hear. They say, the, the believers there, they're, they're so happy and they have so little. I wish I had that kind of contentment. You've heard this, yes? And, there, and there's truth to this. There, there are people that are, that are far more impoverished than we are, and they have much greater faith. And I'm not saying that, that every poor Christian has strong faith, but I'm saying that all things being equal, it's the poor Christian who's likely to have stronger faith than the rich Christian. And the reason I say that is because when you don't know how you're going to afford something, when you don't know how you're going to scrape together the needed resources and you have to depend on God. And you get to sit back and you get to watch as God provides and meets that need. Guess what it does for you? It strengthens your faith. I know my faith is stronger today because of those times when finances were tight and I had to depend on God and I watched Him provide. And, and the rich, they don't have the same opportunity because if there's a need that they have to meet, they know that they can look to their, their checking account. They can, they can stroke a check and they can take care of it. And God says that if we marginalize the poor, we're pushing aside people that he delights in, people that he wants to bless. We're sidelining people with gifts that God wants to give the church. And as followers of Christ, we must love the poor the same way that he does. The second reason that partiality is wrong is that it's unwise. The argument in verses 6 and 7 is a rather practical one. He writes, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So in other words, James says, let's just be logical about this for a moment. Let's think about this. What has curing favor with the rich really gotten you? All you can expect from the rich is a court date. Now, this isn't true across the board, but oftentimes it's the wealthy who are more likely to act in an oppressive manner. They're the ones who can exploit because they're the ones that determine wages 
They're the ones that set prices. They're the ones that figure out compensation packages. And sometimes the poor have no other option uh, but to accept a job, even if the pay isn't fair, because they have to eat. You know, oftentimes it's the guy that's worth millions that decides that he's not going to pay the contractor who's living paycheck to paycheck over some trivial matter. And it's the wealthy who have the means and the connections to use the court system to their advantage. And when this happens, Proverbs 14 tells us this, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. See, God takes this so seriously that when someone takes advantage of the poor, he says, you're, you're dishonoring me. And this brings us to our third and final argument against partiality. In verses 8 and 11, James makes a biblical argument. He makes this argument from Scripture. And, and he reminds us that discrimination against the poor is unloving and it's unlawful. Beginning now in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, if you're discriminating against the poor, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. It's unloving. And that's a clear violation of God's law. And this command to love your neighbor as yourself, it first appears in Leviticus 19. It's in the Old Testament. And then Jesus reiterates it. He gets asked, he says, what's the, you know, what's, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. it it's to love your neighbor, how? As yourself. And, and this is the royal law because it comes from the king. It comes from King Jesus. And so for those of us who are believers, those of us who submit to the lordship of Jesus, this law needs to hold sway. It's taking me a little longer than I care to admit, but I'm almost finished. I got like 25 pages left of David McCullough's excellent biography on John Adams. And I, I've really enjoyed getting to learn a little bit more about the, the second president of the United States, but even more fascinating than I think learning about John has been learning a little bit about his amazing wife, Abigail. I mean, this was a remarkable woman. And uh, the author tells this one story of a time in Abigail's life where she had taken uh, a young man by the name of, of James Prince under her wing. He, he was an African-American boy and that the Adams were staunchly opposed to slavery, and Abigail taught James how to read and to write. And when James asked if he might attend this new school that was being started in the evening for apprentices, Abigail warmly supported this idea. Well, um, it wasn't long after James enrolled that uh, a neighbor contacted Abigail to say that uh, she, she needed to withdraw James from the school because if she didn't, that the other boys were refusing to attend and then the school would have to close its doors. And Abigail asked, she said, well, you know, did, did James misbehave? And the neighbor said, no, um, he didn't. It's because he's black. 
Well, at that point, Abigail became uh, a little incensed, and she decided that it wasn't James who needed the education, it was her neighbors. And she said, send those boys to me. And uh, she proceeded to ask them this. She says, is this the Christian principle of doing unto others as we would want them to do unto us? And the boys recognized that they were acting contrary to how they would want to be treated, that they were in the wrong. And Abigail resolved this crisis by appealing to the royal law. Keeping the royal law is how we reveal our true faith. And it's a tragedy that the American church has such a poor track record as it relates to fulfilling the royal law. And I'm just, I'm hopeful for the American church in the 21st century that we'll change that, that we'll be known as people who keep the royal law and who show no partiality and show no favoritism, that we do what our master teaches. If we don't keep the royal law, if we don't love our neighbor as ourself, James wants us to know it's a big deal. Verse 9 says that we're committing sin. Now, our tendency might be to downplay this and say, oh, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. You know, everybody does it. It's not like I murdered anybody. And James says, whoa, 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 like, time out. That's not how this works. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Here's how I'd illustrate this. It was eighth or ninth grade, and I was hanging out in the backyard one afternoon with the BB gun, and I squeezed the trigger, and much to my dismay, the little BB sailed out of the chamber and over the backyard fence, across the street, and into the neighbor's window. Uh, Now, uh, how do you think my neighbor would have responded if I went over there and knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm really sorry, I just shot a BB through your window, your large bay window, and uh, (laughs) I'd I'd like to pay to get that fixed. Here's $5. (laughs) The neighbor would say, yeah, well, well, um, that's really commendable of you, that's the right thing to do, but $5 isn't going to cut it. And what about if I had protest? And I said, well, no, no, I, I don't think you understand here. Like, I, I, I said I shot a BB. It's like really small. It's like this big. It's just a tiny little hole in the upper left-hand corner. I just want to compensate you for that. He'd say, well, the, it, it kind of doesn't work that way. The window's like a whole piece of glass, and when you break part of it, you break the whole thing. And it's the same way with God's law. The law is a unified whole. And when we break part of it, we break the whole thing. And so if we show favoritism, if we discriminate, we're lawbreakers, the same as adulterers and murderers. It's not a small thing. And this leads James to offer a concluding thought. Rather than continuing as lawbreakers, He tells us in verse 12, so speak and so act 
as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Again, his, his emphasis is on behavior. It's on conduct. James isn't writing to, to change our attitudes. He wants to change our actions. He wants us to know that, you know, it's, it's not through a bumper sticker. It's not through a piece of jewelry. It's not attending a concert that we reveal the genuineness of our faith. It's through how we speak and how we act that we reveal our faith. And, and, and just in case none of the other examples, the other arguments uh, have sunk in, James makes this one more last reminder. He wants us to know about the coming judgment. We sang about this earlier, about Jesus returning and the robes of white. And the Bible wants us to know that, that, that Jesus is coming back. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You know, it's so easy to get just busy with life and to kind of lose sight of this. But this is reality. If you believe it's true, just turn to your neighbor right now and say, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. That's right. And it, and, and as, as believers, we need to live in light of that. We, we need to remember that, that our present actions are going to have eternal consequences. And in, in this law that's in question here, it's not the Old Testament law per se. It's rather Jesus' interpretation. It's his application of that law for us. And living according to to. to to God's will, it's not some like constricting thing. It's not some burden. When we do what pleases God, it's liberating. It's freeing. When we walk according to, to his statutes, we experience the most freedom possible. And James reinforces his warning in verse 13 with these two pithy sayings. He says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This isn't so much a threat as it is an appeal to the gospel. See, God knows all our faults. He knows the envy. He knows the lust. He knows the pride. He, he knows what's rolling around in our heart. He, he knows what we entertain in our thought life. And he doesn't look at us and he doesn't go, I'm not going to pick him or I'm going to pass on her. He doesn't do that. The Bible tells us that while we're still sinners, that Christ died for us. See, there isn't anything that any of us have done to make ourselves more attractive or marketable to God. It's not like God looks down and says, oh, he's really smart or, you know, she's really attractive or He's really good with money. He's rich. I, I, let, let me pick him for my team. God doesn't do any of that. What we need to realize is that, that our sin is, is just so offensive and it's ugly to God. But God in, his, God in his great mercy, he looks past that and he lavishes his love on us anyway. Our salvation is, is an incredible 
act of immeasurable mercy. And the person who who grasps the magnitude of God's mercy is going to be merciful to others. This is Jesus' point in the parable of the unmerciful servant. And this is for sure what James has in mind here. Jesus tells the parable, and in it, uh, there's this master who becomes so angry when the servant who's been forgiven this enormous seven-figure debt goes out and begins to choke this other servant who owes him like 20 bucks. You see, Jesus' point in telling this is if we don't extend mercy to others, it's proof that God's mercy hasn't had a saving effect upon our lives, and we're going to be liable to judgment. However, if our lives are characterized by mercy that's shown to the poor, to the marginalized, to the vulnerable, it's proof that God's saving mercy has had an effect on our lives. Can we just be honest with each other for a moment? Isn't it easy to give more attention to the rich, to the beautiful, to the athletic, to those who dress like us and look like us and live like us? It's easy to do that. And Jesus says that might be how the world operates. That might be how people behave in your office or on your team or at your school, but that's not okay for my followers. Because anytime we go out and through our behavior, we communicate that, that like the kingdom of God is, uh, is, is, is somehow for, for me and my tribe more than it is for you and your kind, guess what we've done? We've distorted the gospel. We, we've made light of his amazing grace. And, and as Christians, we need to be known as our, for our love for all people. The church should be the one place where the poor and the alien and the stranger and the minority and the outcast can come and not feel like a second-class citizen. There might be hierarchies out there, but in here, social relations need to be changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be the people that we recognize the worth of every single person. And we should be known for the way that we walk out these doors and we elevate the dignity of every person in our office, in our school, on our team, in our city. And James wants us to know that the way that we do that isn't by sitting in here and talking about it. It's by going out there and it's through the way that we speak and it's the way that we act. As a way of ending our time together, I want to allow some space for the Holy Spirit to take God's word and apply it to our hearts. Because James would tell us it's not enough just to be hearers of the word. We have to be doers. So I'm going to guide us in a a prayer time, and then I'm just going to leave some space for silence, for us to listen to God, for him to speak to us. Because here's what I know, that if we sit in here and we hear this and we say great message and we walk out the door, and this doesn't change the way that we live on Monday, that that's not what God would want. And so let's just, let's bow our head and let's close our eyes.
And as we come before the Lord, I'm going to invite you to to pray this in the quietness of your heart. God, I want you to search my life. I want you to speak to me. God, would you reveal to me the ways that I'm guilty of favoritism and partiality. Show me right now those ways in which I'm more influenced by the world than your word. God, would you lay on my heart right now one person that you would want me to love this week in a way that you have loved me. God, we confess our sin. Thank you that we do so. That you promise to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God, we pray that you would give us the strength to go from here and to live in such a way that we would reflect the beauty of your gospel. Lord, help us to live lives that would be more reflective of your love, lives that would show that we're more concerned with your favor than man's favor. Empower us by your spirit. And we pray all this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.